Ling Ling, late again Ling. It's a story about Ling's family. And you find out why she's late for everything. You know, it's a short walk from City Hall to the Mong Chong home for the aged. Ling's grandmother was almost 100 years old. Her mind lived more in the past than in the present. Ling, Ling, late again, Ling. Ling went up the stairs. Dinner had passed. She went to her grandmother's room. The television was off. When Ling tiptoed in, she could see her grandmother was asleep. The Prime Minister, Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, was on television. It was 100 years after the railway was built. It's 1985 now, a hundred years later. It's a story about that begins with the first Chinese man who went to that prime minister and he held his head tax paper for more than six decades. And he now wanted a refund for the head tax that he had paid so long ago when he had entered Canada as a young man. That's the start of that story. And everything happens late to Ling in her life. Hi, my name is Nina Zhou. You're listening to the Chinatown Memory Podcast. I hope to bring you voices from interviews collected from an oral history master of arts thesis, which I'm exploring different aspects of Chinese Canadian history and life experience. The project features intergenerational voices from stories behind Toronto Chinatown. Today, we'll be hearing from Bernice. At the beginning of this episode, she tells a snippet of Ling Ling, Late Again Ling, one of the pieces of her repertoire. She's a professional storyteller, actress, and arts educator who grew up in Toronto, immersed in Cantonese songs and stories. And her performance combines the traditional Chinese folklore and Canadian immigration history. She tells stories from Pacific Railroad, Hat Tax, and a struggle for the rights of full citizenship. I've always enjoyed listening to Bernice talking. Her great sense of humor and creativity in expressing her identity is always so refreshing. Bernice is a third-generation Chinese-Canadian on her father's side and second-generation on her mother's side. My grandfather became a citizen in the year 1900, so he must have come in the late 80s or 90s. He came after the railway was completed, which would have been 1885. So he was a jeweler, what we call a gumpo, being what we call a gold shop. But by gold shop, we always mean a jeweler. So he made necklaces and earrings and bracelets and carved them out of gold. And I believe he may have been the first Chinese jeweler or goldsmith. Came with his wife, which was unusual at that time because most men did not come with their wife. Because as soon as the railway was finished, there was a head tax. And we are still not certain if he did pay the head tax, because merchants at that time did not. And if he did, it would have been the $50 head tax. 
okay, because that was what it was in the years he came. So we settled in Vancouver and they had seven children and raised them on Pender Avenue. So my father is the second son and the second eldest. That's on my father's side. After the exclusion happened in 1923, a lot of Chinese people gave up on wanting to spend their family's life in Canada. The immigration shrank for the first time. And um, there were very few Chinese families in BC at that time. But my mother, Gai Yin-Hume, she was born in China and she made the remarkable journey of crossing the Pacific Ocean in 1938. Now this is, the Exclusion Act is very much in progress. And so during that time of the exclusion for 24 years, fewer than 50 Chinese people officially entered Canada. I don't know if she was one of the official people or whether they didn't count a few people like her who entered Canada. Uh, she came as a, um, to perform the Chinese opera. So she might have just had a performance visa and perhaps it didn't count as being a Chinese person. But for whatever reasons, the war broke out and she stayed. And um, um, my, my father and my mother, they had uh, four children here and raised them in Toronto. So it was kind of unusual to have a family life for Chinese people, to have a family life. I mean, we would have been, I don't know, the 1%, the 5%, whatever it is, that were Chinese families, because the majority of them were Chinese men working and sending money and hoping to have their families join them. During the exclusion era, women and children did not have as much opportunity as men did to travel aboard. Gender imbalance was a big problem, and Chinatown was called the Bachelor Society. Being one of the lucky ones whose family was intact at that time, Bernice tells her perception about Asia when she was a kid. Something was complicated by social background and growing up surrounded by phrasal word in the family. I think the contrast was at that time, basically all your information is coming in the English language through books. And books at that time had very few pictures in them. And the very few books that had Chinese people in them, a Chinese story in them, were always bothersome to me. They're always a caricature. And I, I'm at that time when I, we're getting um, on the last of the British education. So I can name, you know, the royal families of England just fine. And then I'm the beginning of the age when the American television takes over. So I'm seeing that as well. I mean, other children and adults would say to me, are you Chinese or Japanese? And I can't tell the difference. They said it almost as one sentence. Or are you Chinese or Japanese? And what is the difference anyways? And they wouldn't wait for a reply. And I would kind of not know how to answer them. Say things to me like another child or something would say, what was China like if you're Chinese? And I always felt bad because I couldn't remember what China was like. And so it made me feel bad when people assumed that I knew what China was like. 
And I, I don't know, maybe I was seven or nine or something. And I remember stating that to my older sister who was four years older. And she said, you're just so silly. You've never been to China. And I said, oh, I've never been to China. And I felt so much better. Oh, so I didn't forget anything important. <gasps> I didn't forget anything important. I've never been to China, but I'm Chinese. That's because your mom and dad are Chinese. I didn't quite get it, but I felt relieved uh, that I had not forgotten anything important. Asia was not discussed at school. You learned about Marco Polo and he called it Cathay. Okay, that's the first time you learn something. It's just like not important, insignificant, not discussed. And then the bit of information coming through is this element of fear, which is communism, red. The general tone is these booming voices that put this kind of and you, you don't really know what it is because of course I understand Cantonese. And for me, it's kind of like Segu Sangu, like my aunt's talking to me or something, you know, like it's, it's more domestic, this is going on in Cantonese in my head. But in my general daily life, there, there's the odd comic book or something about a Jap and, and there's this pow, pow, pow kind of thing. And you just get the feeling that that's not good. Uh, and you get the feeling about shoot them up, you know, all the cowboy things. And you get the feeling all those Indians, you know, that, that somehow you, you just get a general sense that that these people, they're not fully formed in the information you're, you're receiving from the outside world. Okay. And I wasn't able to put these things together in my younger mind. Uh, because I didn't like the tone that was coming on about Asia. I think at a certain age or point or something, I just kind of couldn't read in English what people writing about Asia. They, because it had, always had a tone that wasn't the world I knew from a family, community sense of way. And so I couldn't put them together. So I found it better just not to read about it. I waited a long, 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 long time before I could read about it. And, and I think it's because it was, the word communism was like a red scare, like all of this was just, it's just kind of in the background. And then the general sense from my, my elders in the Cantonese language, you got the sense they didn't want to talk about things. They were rather protective if they had hardships they weren't gonna you don't go up to ask why is that old man so old and why is he all alone I mean I can't as a child but certainly I saw enough men like that and did you figure it out later it's just not explained to me at school they don't talk about the exclusion act you can't find it in any of the books okay and they never used I don't even know to this date what the Chinese word for exclusion act is all I know is Jin, Jin. It was not allowed. You know, I'd say to my aunt, "Well, you know, 
and gin, gin, and they'd say things like, well, you had to come back within two years. You had to come back within two years. I mean, now I know that the Canadian government, um, in order for you to sustain whatever status you had in Canada, the men had to come back at one point within one year or at the other point within two years or they'd lose their status. Okay, those are immigration rules. But as a, a, a young person, it wasn't explained to me in that way. It just wasn't gin, gin, it wasn't allowed, it wasn't permitted. The question about all those things were not just not being discussed in family, but it also saw its absence in school education, where Bernice found it puzzling. Actually, and I checked this with my sister as well, I can we had moved at this time, so I must have been over 15 years of age. And my sister is studying history at the University of Toronto, getting a history degree. And my mother in the kitchen is saying to her, see, you know so much Chinese, maybe sometime you'll write something about the Chinese in Canada. And we both turned to her and said, what did the Chinese do in Canada? And my mother said to me, they built the railway. And here's a university student studying history. She doesn't know this. Here is this high school student looking through my history book. Can't find anything about this. I know the railway was built through Canada about building it. It's a big deal in my history book, but it's not one word about the Chinese. And I'm thinking to myself, did they really? And I'm thinking to myself, does the high school history teacher know this? And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think I'll ask because I don't think he knows it either. So if you want to know about the Chinese history in Canada, it's not very easy to find out in the 1960s. My sister left Canada went to the United States, became a professor of Asian American history, and does know now about the Chinese in Canada as a consequence. But I'm saying if you wanted to find it in Canada, it was not very easy to find. I mean, it, it's so unimportant. It's so insignificant. It was just a kind of going attitude at that time. But you could also say that you know, how old was I before I really understood the significance of the residential schools of the Indigenous people? It's, it went on for so long, but we did, we did we understand it? Did we know the significance? I'm just saying that I'm a part of this time period. Born in Chinatown, but moved to Toronto suburb very early. We were one of the first Chinese families to leave Toronto Chinatown and move to outside of Chinatown. Bernice wasn't aware of the story behind the house she grew up in until years later. And she remembers her family's weekly trip to Chinatown with fondness. I didn't find out till I was much older, till I was long after we left the community. I went to public school and up to grade uh, went to grade high school for two years there as well, that they had uh, put down a deposit for a house at the end of the subway line. Well, this is a big thing in Toronto at that time. 
building a subway line from the Union Station out of the bottom north all the way to Eglinton Avenue. And so my parents bought a house at the end of the subway line at Eglinton Avenue. And that's where we grew up. But I didn't know that the house I grew up in was, was not originally the house that they wanted to buy. The first house they wanted to buy when they put down a deposit, when the community learned that we were a family from Chinatown, the sale of the house was stopped. Okay. Now, my parents didn't talk about these things to us. So uh, I had a, always a sense that of uh, these whispering voices, because uh, they were, uh, the grown-ups are rather protective around the children. I think the demographics of being part of such a very small community at that time. Now, what you have to realize is that families were a minority within the Chinese community. So I was a minority within the Chinese community and then the Chinese community was a minority in the huge white population. When I grew up, I thought that my mother would have been happier if we'd stayed in Chinatown because she was a very social person. And we went to Chinatown. They actually went twice a week. She and my father would go to the Yum Walks there, to the music club on an evening, say, I, I think maybe it was Friday evening. And then on Sunday, we always went down together as a family. On Sunday afternoon, we would go to the, the theater. I called it the theater on Center Avenue. I can still see and smell the theater in my mind. That's a big old theater with these big red seats that you sat on and a big stage. And so you could perform on the stage. You could also show movies on the stage. And that was uh, what we often did on a Sunday afternoon, as well as, you know, going down for lunch for dim sum, picking up the groceries that you could only buy in Chinatown. I mean, where would you buy your soy sauce? Where would you buy fresh ginger? You could only buy it in Chinatown. Nobody knew what bok choy was except for the Chinese or chasu. I mean, now you can buy it everywhere. But um, at that time, if you didn't go to Chinatown, you wouldn't have it. You know, or ma tai or water chestnuts or whatever. And so that's where we got uh, groceries for the week because I'm sure I was the only child in my community who sat down to a bowl of rice and, and we ate with chopsticks every dinner. The general social interaction of, of being able to chat with other people, uh, which she got when they retired and they moved back to Chinatown, would have suited my mother very much so. And once we moved uh, to, maybe it's the first suburb of Toronto, then um, she was removed from that. You know, she couldn't speak to the neighbors. The neighbors weren't speaking to us. And although we as kids all managed very well, we were good students, quick with sports. And there was the sense though, as my mother would say, when we'd have a concert or something, my mother would make sure that we were always properly dressed. She would say things like, you're the only Chinese people they know, so you have to present yourself. So there was always a sense that because we stuck out, we had to, in some ways, um, stand up straight. You know, we had to, in some ways, we weren't just representing ourselves. You know, we, we were representing more than ourselves. So I think that pressure was there on us. And then there was just the general sense, although they weren't explicit about it, was that you're gonna have to be smarter, do more, 
if you're going to be treated equally. But that's the message we give to women. That's the message we give to minorities. And that's the message I got. And it was just the reality of the time in that sense. That's just the way it was. But luckily, <laughs> the four of us were all capable people without any real messy, extraneous things, except that we all wore glasses, aside from that. <laughs> uh, you know, we did things readily enough and fit in. For one thing, when they chose the house they chose in, there weren't neighbors to protest. But there weren't neighbors to protest because they chose a house where there was nobody in the backyard. There was nobody in the front across the street because they had literally chose a house on Eglinton Avenue. Like it was a place, wasn't on a quiet residential street where people could protest. It was very common for people to go see a house at nighttime so the neighbors wouldn't know who was coming. I mean, we weren't the only, you know, if you talk to other families who are not white at that time. If you wanted to move into a particular neighborhood, you know, you had to be extra careful. And then, of course, for each of us in our own way, you're making your own way. People don't stop small children from doing things. It's only when they get too older do you become in some ways a threat. But when there's so few of you, you're also not a threat. Because also what I'm aware of as um, a first Chinese doctor uh, he got his degree at McGill, okay? This is my father's friend, Fred Chu. But there was a Daniel Wong, another, uh, my, my father also knew him, who actually had graduated from medicine earlier from UBC. But he could never practice medicine because it wouldn't allow him to have his internship. You know, so it wasn't like we were aware of these kinds of things. And so when, you're not a threat when there were so few of you. There was a lot less racism on this side of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, and most of the families we knew actually came from BC originally. And they recognized that there was a lot less racism here than in BC. And I think a sprinkling of people are not really a threat. You just felt in the balance of things that you were fine. And certainly for a girl, you didn't have to, there were no real reasons to rock the boat, right? But it's different for children than it is for adults. So this is why the adults around us are kind of careful in a certain way. They don't want to discourage us because we're supposed to be able to, you know, we're going to be able to go to university. We're going to be able to use our degree. This was something denied them. If they got to use the degree, they were the first ones that got to use it. Language influences the thinking of people, being one of the ways that culture diversity manifests in. Coming up, we delve more into the language influence, whether or not it's conscious. I think this beauty of having another language, and I think all bilingual people have this, it's just that you can think in another way. And it's, it's wonderful. It allows you to just examine the, the life in more than one way of thinking. I think because the first people who sang to me and rocked me and talked to me were Cantonese, that there was a, 
a sense of connection in the heart and in the person. And I think that I, I can't ever be taken away from you. But I think in English. I read in English. And it's a rational life in English. And at the time in the 1950s in Canadian schools at that time, it's Christian. You know, it's it, you, we, I started school with, uh, say, the Lord's Prayer. You read a verse in the Bible. And like it was very much so. So there's also a kind of another carols at Christmas time. There's a that that is also a part of your thinking. And you're not thinking whether you choose it or not choose it. It's only just there. Uh, that's a part of it too. But I've never really had people to discuss this with until very recently. And even at say at, at university or something, when I was meeting other Chinese people you never really mixed in the Chinese community. And even as siblings, the four of us rarely spoke Chinese to each other. We spoke English to each other and we throw in the Chinese word. Like if you're having cha siu, of course we would never say barbecue pork. It's more natural to say certain things in certain ways, right? But on the whole, when we discuss the things that happened at school, well, they happened in English. So you're gonna talk about hockey in English. You know, so there, there's all that, but there's, a, there's another part going on. And I think the Chinese language just shapes your world and you, you're not really aware of it. And just as I'm going up and, and now that people are asking things like, how do you identify him, her, his, her, there? And then I'm realizing that oh, Chinese, you don't have to worry about the gender issue. You just say, Ker. you know, um, there's not a gender you know, there's not like the French where things are masculine and feminine, like the language is shaped. So there's a lot of very small things that uh, people have in common from their language of speaking. And um, so I have that already. And I have, I have this same sense. I have this very individualistic uh, American view because it's all in my television uh, world, which, you know, is that hardy frontier and that singular but the Chinese language is all in relationship to someone else, right? Whether my sister's older, whether my brother's younger, you know, it's all this relationship thing. And then your individuality recedes into more of this sense of this wholeness. And it's there in that sense. So for me, in choosing the arts, all of this is very significant to me. So it shows up in my artwork. There's two things going on in my life. First of all, as a creative person, I have to find out who I am. I think everybody has that task. And in my case, it is tied to also having to find out the history of the Chinese in Canada at a much later, uh, late date. Now, I would say that some of the Chinese people my age who I was growing up with didn't seem to need to question all this stuff. I, as, a, as an individual, maybe as an artist, needed to, okay? Like some people were just get that degree and in dentistry or get that degree and you know just open your whatever and they just step 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 and they're just fine and they don't understand why someone like me is wanting to know these things and also why bring up the past especially when it was when the older people don't want to talk about it either times are tough nobody wants to remember you know the number of hours they worked and laundry work is nothing to brag about you know, I knew people who 
own Chinese laundries and that. So, so there's not a lot of discussion about that. There's two things being shutting off from the past and moving you young people, you know, just move ahead. And so there's that kind of optimism. And so you don't have to know any of this stuff. Like why, why try to remember any of this stuff? But for some reason for me, I need to. Okay, and I think it's tied to just being an artist. And it's the creativeness of it. And I was rocking the boat because I just kind of didn't fit in with what the other, I just didn't want to go to that end of campus where the engineers were. And that's where the other Chinese people were studying. I was kind of at the other, you know, I just didn't, they're just, it was just the sheer numbers, just the sheer numbers. And had I been born a few years later, it would have been different um, because um, I'm, I'm dating and seeing the same people that my older brother and my older sister saw. But my younger brother, um, by the time he's finishing university, the family reunification has happened and there are a lot more people just to interact with and see. And maybe somebody's interested in music, dance, theater, or painting. But for, for my cohort of time, I was very singular. I started off in the performing arts, in the theater, and I really felt fortunate being part of the Theater Pass Marai acting ensemble. And we are an ensemble where, um, I forgot how many people we were at that time, more than several people on stage. And it was a, it was a wonderful time in Canadian theater. And it was the beginning of Canadian theater. And I enjoy this richness and I enjoy this working together with people. At that time, the idea of doing Canadian stories, like not stories that came from our English traditions, but doing Canadian stories was actually quite a radical thought at that time at Theatre Rest, past Marai. So this thing of doing Canadian is in my, uh, you know, it somehow sinks into me. All right, but I didn't grow up on a farm. So when Theatre Prasper, I just the farm show, like I just don't fit in. Okay, I'm from Chinatown. Who else fits into Chinatown and wants to make art? So um, for me, then that means kind of going more in a solitary way. And I think that going in a solitary way doesn't make things happen quickly. So I would say professionally, I kind of stuck with things, partly in a stubborn way, but there's less to feedback on, unless people throwing the ball back at you and making you think about it, you know, and then, because I, I, I look at kind of creative pods and I think that if you have people to bat ideas off, perhaps in science too, that they, the, you leap ahead faster. So I'd say it's kind of solitary in a certain way. You know, I could have stayed in theater, but I knew I couldn't. Once the ensemble, which was a radical form of uh, a season of radical theater, radical in the sense that I could be any gender, any age on stage. That was our radical theater. But then after that broke out, then 
what would you do with one Chinese actor in Canada? And there's nothing for you. And plus the fact that I hadn't had enough formal training, okay? So I understood very much when I read recently Jean Yu, who's in uh, Mr. Kim's Convenience, describing her situation. And I did go to see her production of, of um, Yoko Ono. You know, it's just that you're so, it, it's not that the world is keeping you from creating. It's just that the critical mask of your, of what you are interested in, kind of not. So in terms of my own artwork and my own creativity, I've always, it's part documentary, as well as just being uh explore, you know, usually most artists just explore. In my case, my explorations are always tied to being, has a documentary quality about it. And the reason the documentary is because I know that my just exploring doesn't make sense to the general audience or the general people receiving my work unless they understand my community background and they don't know it. I mean, why would you know about paying the head tax? I mean, who knows it? They're only, they are only knowing it. Like, how would you know about, you know, the family separation? I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it's only become a part of our, our, our general knowledge very recently. And so how is that documentary quality shown in your work? Some of the work I'm literally writing in. I'm actually writing stories in them. Uh, Childhood of Sundays is about my Sundays in Chinatown. Some of the titles of my work, Crossing the Pacific. I'm using materials from China. I think one of them is called uh, Skirting Gold Mountain. Who else would have known it was shown in Montreal at that time? Like, would anybody have known what Gold Mountain was? I mean, I know, gamsan, gamsan, gamsan. But, you know, when I'm, when I'm showing work, there I did work which was also called um, I Can Paint the Maple Leaf with a Sumi Ink, Inkbrush. And I literally cut out maple keys, cut and scored them in Sumi Ink. And I was saying, I can make, you know, I'm Canadian. And I, I'm all, what I'm always saying in my artwork is, I'm here. My family's here, my community's here, but do they see that in my work? I don't know. But I know sometimes I'm doing it in statements when I'm saying Pacific immigrant. I'm ready about my grandfather and his gumpo and his gold shop. And so it's part documentary, okay? When I'm doing ideograms, I'm painting in, with colored dyes because I, I have a textile studio, um, a part of the fabric studio down at Harbor Front at some time. And I'm using the paintbrush the way I was taught to use it in Chinese school, but I'm not just using Sumi ink now. I'm using all these colors of dyes, which I love, because I love color. And of course I went to school and studied about American expressionism and their art. Uh, so there is always a mingling of two things, but I, I don't get any feedback from anyone in that way. I'm only getting it now, very late in life. And it's just because there was, no one else who, there weren't enough people who wanted to see it, who also spoke Cantonese. <laughs> so how would you see that there's, um, I think my son even once said to me, you know, 
he could see the, a kind of brushstroke, but I can't read enough Chinese to actually, and, and part of the artwork as well is, I know that I can't, I can't read Chinese, but when I go look at paintings that are brushstroke, like the expressions painting you see in art galleries. I know when I go up and look at it, I read it. I, I read it the way I read Chinese script, which I don't know of any other painters who study American expressionism do it. But because in Chinese, of course, you have to write things in a certain order. Kind of, I know instinctively I look at art that way and I, I can, and I can't read uh, Chinese calligraphy, but I instinctively go up to it. And, and as a painter, I'm kind of looking at the order in which they painted, but I don't know the word. I look at Western art, that it, it's painted in an abstract way that way too. And this maybe it's just my own peculiarity, but it, it has to do with my cultural background. And I, so I value the two languages that I have. I recognize I have limitations in, in each of my cultures and languages, but I value what is, I guess, the minority background has brought me. And so this is my uh, visual artwork in that sense. And I don't know, I don't know. I don't think any Chinese people ever saw it. There's a photo that was showing an art space somewhere and you were wearing a Chinese robe and painting. Can you tell me about that? In a gallery, and I'm performing a piece. That's part of my Maple Keys series. I'm painting Maple Keys right across Canada the way the train did. And I performed that piece at Art Space in Peterborough. You know, so there were a few performance spaces in that way. And so I was showing at places like Prime and working with textile artists. I am able to create and show, and in some ways you could say that it's a singular journey for every artist to create whatever they do. And that is true for me, like it is for everyone else. But I think in my case, because there's a kind of, I felt the need to document. I felt the need to document because I knew, I was in some ways tracing my family and my community history, but I also knew it was not known. After having two children, Bernice realized her role as a visual artist didn't fit the life of being a parent. And so she diverted the focus on being an arts educator, adding storytelling component, and eventually became a storyteller in 1995. I took to it quite easily, and it fed my work as a parent and fed my work as an artist to go in with my paints and everything, and to work with children in the schools. And uh, now when I was going in at that time, the staff rooms were primarily white. I could walk into the staff room and again, you're the only visible minority. But then when you go to the, into the classroom, it's not. Okay, the faces in the seats are not, but the people in the staff room still are. And the kids would invariably asked me, especially the ones that looked like me, more about me, like in between when I'd be making, we might be painting a wall. In the beginning, I was doing all kinds of work, art about environmental things, whatever the, the, um, the teachers and other people have asked me to go in to do. And um, 
but because I could hear the children asking about me, being curious about me, and I recognized that they were like a smaller version of me or a more recent version of me in the 1950s. I mean, now this was the 1980s, which is they're just saying, I don't see myself in my books. I don't see myself like you're here now. Tell me, you've never been to China? No, I've never been to China. Well, how is it then you speak Chinese? Well, I learned it here in Chinatown from my family. And then, well, you're going to Hawaii, and I, but I always encouraged everyone to, if they could speak Portuguese or speak Spanish or whatever. So I found myself being very, very busy being a part of this, not just artwork, but this kind of cultural vacuum that was there. And so initially when I was working with all kinds of art materials, mixed media, anything, you know, collecting empty vessels to put anything in, recycling art and everything, I narrowed it to using materials from Asia, um, mulberry paper, brushes and paints, the textile materials I did, but I, I, I began to direct it more to my cultural heritage. And so in that way, like I'd make kites and I'd make uh, lanterns and I talked about myself more because I saw the children were interested in this. And then I began to tell, and then when I, when I was waiting for the paints to dry, I found myself telling stories in Chinese. Okay, we made a bird, so I tell a bird story. Love telling the story of the magic paintbrush, which is a Chinese classical story or a folk tale. And so in that way, my arts education things became very integrated experience and I was working all the time. And I could see that vacuum and, and that need. And then at some point, I knew that the stories were outgrowing the, um, you know, I'd only tell a, I tell a kite story when we were making kite and I tell, I tell a story related to the art object. I made so many dragons. I can't tell you the, the dragons I made, whether they're three inches tall or filled the whole gym. I knew that my stories were outgrowing the, the art form. And so I officially made myself a storyteller in 1995 as well. And also it meant then, um, Paul Yee's book on Ghost Train was just coming out and he gave me permission to tell a story. That also meant that I could tell more historical stories because in the sense of all of this, the children really want to know, not just about me, but about, I want them to see themselves as Canadian. I meant that from, from um, all the children who were coming in, wherever they were from. You know, if they were from Cambodia, if they were from Russia, I always did that. It was always inclusive in a certain way. And I always began with a map of the world, talked about the oceans. And rather than use the word race, I would use the word, and okay, which oceans is Canada from? You know, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean. And, you know, we'd, I talk about more of the languages that people spoke. And so as a storyteller then, some of the harsher aspects came out as well, only with the older children, because I think small children should just celebrate stories, should celebrate life and should, should feel happy and glad about things. But as, as the children get older and some people ask you things, like I can still see the boy's face when I'm in Stratford, looking out at me in the gym. Were you bullied at school? He asked me. I, you know, some of the questions coming out from people are different and I can still see myself in a school tomorrow, but at the, uh, in North York, seven or eight. And when I'm in a, in a school where there's a large Asian population, 
Some of them want to know you and some of them don't, especially if they're teenagers. So I was also very careful when I'd go in with teenagers to look really hip and cool. I didn't want to look like their aunt or their grandmother. I wanted to look like someone who, you know, would listen to the same music they did. I probably did. And I probably did wilder things than they might ever do because I wanted them to have a, I want them to have the choice of, you know, so I always said I loved having a paintbrush and I did because I loved to paint. So I liked going to Chinese school. My brother, he hated Chinese school. I'm not going to learn any more of this ancient, ancient, ancient Chinese stuff. I'm going to play hockey. And then there'd always be a group of kids who would just giggle and laugh off their seats. And you know they were the ones who were going to Saturday morning Greek class. They got it. So uh, I love the interaction of having an audience as well. You know, my performance life and the kind of visual life kind of came together. I do choose stories which are very visual to tell. And then I could create my own stories as well and relate to them to some of the historical circumstances. And, uh, you know, I bring in artifacts, well, silver. So the, uh, so it's kind of an integrated uh, form of uh, creativity in that way. So it is related to it. Uh, it's just that at different times, and then as the population changed, and as the general knowledge changed, but in the beginning, when I was doing it, I really felt I was educating the teachers as much as the students. You know, they were, and I would be handing them out curriculum things. And once you do that, then you're, doesn't have to be me standing in front of you. The information is coming from different places. So that's how my work has gone. You know, so now I'm at a point of life, which is kind of interesting because there's a whole pile of people we're saying, oh, we didn't want to learn about the railway in Canada. Oh, it's so boring. And I'm thinking, thank God you learned about it in grade seven, you know, whereas, you know, and not, a, not looking for it at university, you know, like in some ways I feel like things have changed and work, and that's terrific. So when did you officially separate your visual work and your storytelling? They're kind of always going parallel for a long time, but I did start exhibiting when my kids were small. And I remember feeling, I just, I knew when my last exhibit was happening, I just had a sense that I wasn't going to create these big pieces anymore exhibit. And I, I, I went through a period of grieving about it. And, and also the arts education thing was more dependable income. But then I was happy enough to find that storytelling was also another creativity and because my vision isn't, isn't very good as I'm getting older, I feel very fortunate that actually I can work in storytelling. So um, things just progress that way. And so there's always been a kind of stubbornness to um, kind of going it on your own. I don't think I'm that prolific, uh, the push and the, or the discipline or whatever, but I feel, I feel pretty good about things you know, and the merger of things. And what is the process like crafting a piece of storytelling? Storytelling in Canada is supposed to have a particular style. And it was uh, developed by someone who, I wasn't a storyteller when Alice Kane was around, uh, but I've heard about her 
and uh, she left an, a, an award as well. And I was I was lucky enough to receive it one year. But the storytelling in Canada is supposed to be just let your voice tell the story. Don't use a lot of movement, and, you know, like no drama kind of thing. I, I don't really do that style. I, I like to move and pace. And because, you know, I draw pictures in the air and, you know, I don't know. I just, I don't adhere to that style. Also, this minority thing is strange too, because in the storytelling world, there's what they call story swaps, okay, where you go to things and you tell stories or versions of the same story. But of course, again, everything is European-based here. Okay, so I never belonged at storytelling swaps. Was it 2006 was the first time I went to? I, anyways, I was invited to the International Storytelling Festival in Singapore. And that was the first time, and I'll tell you, for a long, long time, uh, officially I became a storyteller in 1995. And all this time, I just assumed that there's a lot of other people like me in British Columbia telling stories. I just presume that. For me to discover it's not so, I think it, it says so much about the demographics of the the shape of the Chinese community in Canada, those years of um, head tax and exclusion, it kind of made such a strong mark on the people who were here that we couldn't produce enough artists in BC. I mean, we almost couldn't produce any more than we could in Ontario, and yet the population is so much greater there. But it, it for me, it shows the legacy and it's a harsh legacy and a sad legacy that we have. And the reason it's so important to me isn't just the Chinese in Canada. It's because I see it as a line of immigration history. And I just see that because the mark was so much harder on the Chinese and that line, you know, it's about immigration labor. And it's, it's about taking advantage of poor countries and poor circumstances. And we're, we're still seeing it today and the line is still being continued. And why I feel it's so important to be, for all Canadians to know the immigrant history of the Chinese is because it's just immigrant history. But because it's so harsh. And, and also I, I would often when I was in front of young audiences, I knew some people were being bullied or also being, the, the children who were putting up their hands and nodding their heads when I would tell more about the hardships and the unfairness and the injustice in the past, they were not the group that looked like me. They began to be groups that did not look like me. But then at the end of the storytelling session or something some I always had things on display and uh, students would come up and look at them and sometimes they would stop and talk to me about things like a boy talked about walking across a couple of continents to flee India India men he was a refugee and these two girls just lingered and lingered and then I got the message they wanted to talk to me and the last a friend said to me something about that uh, her friend was in the band, was a 
great honor for their school to go play in someplace like Ottawa or something. And, you know, it's an overnight weekend kind of thing, but she can't go because the family won't go. And um, then at lunchtime, I told the librarian who'd invited me about this situation. And she said, and I said, you know, like the, the way, you know, I explained the kind of Asian family situation to her. So I can see, I can see people having an e uneasy background and having to struggle with a few things that way. And they, they don't often have to look at me. And what it's also about is traditional family from the homeland you come from in this new Canadian culture. Right. And for girls, it's a tougher bind. OK, their mothers might never have been able to go to the school. So when I'd ask questions like, uh, so why would you come? Why would you leave your home, your language, your family, everything and come, come? Um, you know, kids would tell me different things, you know, like typhoon or something. They, they get certain things, war or something. And it was always a girl who would say better education. You know, they had a mother or grandmother who maybe wasn't able to get, this was something they could have here. You know, so those immigrant stories just continue. And so by looking at the Chinese situation, we can look at the past and we have numbers. We can say 81,000 people paid the head tax, but we could say for 24 years, you only let 50 people in. Why this group and nobody else? Only the Chinese were excluded, no one else. You know, like we have hard facts that we can back up stories of racism, stories of uh, taking advantage of people. We have hard facts. And with those facts, then it, it's easier to look at some of the same circumstances we're seeing now in our, the labor system we have with, because I, th I think that a lot of things haven't changed. Sometimes I look at things and I think, my God, that sounds just like the, the Chinese workers. The Chinese workers got paid half the amount of a white worker. And when they got their paychecks, money had been taken off for their food. Money had been taken off their lodging. The white workers, no money was taken off. Immigrant farm workers, do they take money off for their lodging in their bunk beds? Do they let them lodge somewhere else? Can they get another job? Something like there's a lot of, so that's why I think it's important that, um, so I feel it's a bit of a service to the community. I think as an artist, there's the artwork and there's also, you know, it's partly about communication and society. And at some point as well, I realized, um, and it was that point too, when I realized I wasn't gonna show in galleries as well. Uh, there are a number of reasons, you know, you look, is this gonna sell? And uh, how much, you know, like there, there's all that, but it, it's also that um, I wasn't born into a, a social setting that bought art, um, but I knew that if you wanted to buy art, or be with people who bought art or sold art or whatever, you could learn it. So I had to ask myself, are you gonna learn this? Are you willing to spend the time with these people to learn this? Will anybody stop you? You know, will you stop yourself kind of thing? And um, I think I really have enjoyed being a part of what I call a community artist or a folk artist who's with their, in the, uh, 
you know, who's out there communicating with people. So the rarity of being a fine artist of painting something that hangs on the wall and so many years later it's worth more or less or whatever, it's, it has its own, it's its own system, you know, but uh, the storytelling work. And um, I think my stories though, my historical stories, and this is what I'm looking for in the time I have ahead, they actually don't fit the genre of storytelling. The way storytelling is, for one thing, there are too many dates, too many things about it. And I feel that they're actually a blueprint for a theater work or perhaps a film work or another piece of work. Um, Ling Ling, late again, Ling, uh, a story like that. But you know, when as an individual, as a community, when each member of your family has been held back, late again, you know, so, but it's too big a story to tell. It's 24 minutes. Most of the audience has never had known what a head tax is, or they barely know what it is. So they have difficulty really following the story. And I don't have a lot of opportunity to hear it, to tell it, okay? More often than not, they want to hear me tell Lung Lung. It's a story I created about for Chinese New Year's or about dragons in general. You know, that's a, it's a story for kids to shout out and I teach them a Chinese name, a Chinese word with the story. But I'm happy with the work I've done and I'm hoping there's be create other creative young people who will take something from that work and carry it further. For me, I've been just part of a small page in Canadian history of creativity. Uh, but I think it's a significant point. I think I stubbornly held on to it because I couldn't be just making textiles, which I did, with, you know, that are beautifully painted and colored uh, in patterns and designs and that. And I did because I valued what I had, and I, I feel in some ways that because there are so few of us born in the 1940s, that the few of us who had a voice then, our voices, well, it isn't just my voice, it's the memory of the people who came before me, and they certainly were not listened to. They barely spoke about their circumstances. So part of it is just a general um, community sense, and maybe as the Chinese language goes, you think in clear terms of three generations. I can't get that out of my head. I think in terms of three generations. And that comes across in my English language, as well as my Cantonese. Mm -hmm.